0: Hello, and welcome. This is Jonah Steinberg. I'm a Jewish chaplain at Harvard and the director of Harvard Hillel. And so glad to welcome you to this conversation about the themes week by week of our Torah readings. And again, this week, I am so glad that it truly is an actual conversation with two wonderful people joining, especially for this week, whom I will introduce in a moment. But first to say, as to our Torah reading, that this week we read the story of Noah and the Flood. Last week in our scriptures, the appearance of humankind upon the world seen in the garden seemed to be a very good divine idea and actuality. This week, not so much, at least as we begin our reading, to the point that God undertakes what the British comedian Ezzie Izzard has called the etch-a-sketch ending of the world, shaking it all back into primordial wild and waste or null and void, with the exception of Noah and his family in the vessel Noah builds filled with the other living beings he brings along with him. And so our theme is not only conservation, but also finding a way forward for our species and our world, perhaps in collaboration and at least in good company with other living beings, constructively and perhaps even beautifully, to find a way that is not only evil all day long, as our Torah describes the human scene in Noah's time just before the flood. With me to think about this are Professor Neri Oxman. This week, Harvard Torah reaches along the Charles River to MIT, where Neri is the Sony Corporation Career Development Professor and Associate Professor of Media Arts and Sciences at the MIT Media Lab, where she has founded and directs the Mediated Matter Research Group. And if I mention that Neri has been named a cultural leader at the World Economic Forum and has received an Emerging Voices Award from the Architectural League of New York, and that her work has appeared and has been celebrated in the New York Times and the Boston Globe and on the covers of Wired, Icon, and Surface, and in the permanent collection of New York's uh, Museum of Modern Art, and the MFA, and the Pompidou Center, and the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum, and that if I went on listing Neri's accolades, we would be here for well over our allotted time, then you will have a sense of why you should make a beeline after this conversation to Neri's website, where there actually are bees, and to the many videos you can find online in which Neri and her visionary work are featured. And this week, Harvard Torah reaches also all the way up to Alaska, where Harvard College student Ariel Silverman, here with us as well, has been working this semester at trying to protect a community of beluga whales from the ravages and the dangers and even the gawking interest of our human species. Up there in Cook Inlet, as Ariel has written, there is an enduring struggle to balance developing natural resources while protecting the watershed's biodiversity, along with its tourism and fishing industries. To date, Ariel, you've observed, the scale has tipped in favor of development. So perhaps let me begin with that sense of urgency. There is a cataclysm in the Torah reading, after all, and and a question about time. It strikes me that the whales you're working with, Ariel, and the beautiful creations you bring into the world, Neri, are both in their ways, from the perspective of most of our day-to-day lives, exotic. And so I find myself wondering if what you do, Neri, and how you do it can possibly gain purchase swiftly and broadly enough to be of any consequence for the beluga whales of Cook Inlet and other communities of creatures like them. It seems like a question out of keeping in that there's such a wonderful sense of calm in your work, Neri. But since there's also urgency in our ecological landscape, um, let me ask you, first of all, what you're working on these days. And if it's not an unfair question, if you can imagine it reaching eventually somehow to places like the one where Ariel is.
1: Thank you so much, Jonah. I'm sandwiched between the best parashot there are, right? Uh, Bereshit and Jonah. Um, and, and beyond those two, Noch is probably my third favorite. So I'm, I'm honored to be here and to share the screen with you and with Ariel. Thank you so much for having me and for enabling me to enjoy this uh, Ben the, the the time between sunrise and sunset as we accept Shabbat. Tonight. Um, I you are finding me in a very, very special moment in my personal and professional life. uh, As I approach a fork in the road, uh, a crossroad, as it were, uh, metaphorically and and quite literally, um, between the museum and the real world, between academia and the corporate world, uh, between the Torah and the Masim. And and I think it, it it you're finding me in this moment, which is why it, it was so very important for me to to get on this conversation with you and with Ariel, uh, because uh, I am personally now in, in the process of forming a company that will help us translate some of the research that we've carried on over the past 20 years at MIT and beyond uh, to the real world, uh, reaching out to, to the polls, um, uh, again, metaphorically and literally, uh, and to the whales. Um, so, so this is a this is particularly unique moment because as my my amazing newfound friend and colleague, Ron Milo from the Weizmann Institute indicated in a recent paper, 2020, this year, marks the crossover year uh, when human beings have overcome uh, in terms of the mass that we produce, anthropomass, he calls it. Mm. Um, buildings, concrete, uh, products, etc., uh, we have now uh, surpassed uh, through anthropomass the amount of biomass on our planet. Uh, this is the year. This is the moment. Uh, and, and and if you think the work is come, it is only because it's come inside the eye of the storm. Uh, but outside this eye of the storm where we're... Uh, required as leaders to express a calmness, because a vision cannot really, you cannot really see without the calm. Um, uh, It is is quite stormy out there. Uh, We are in the center of the parasha uh, today, especially this year.
0: It's good to know that you're at that crossroads in this moment. and 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 Ariel it was so lovely to receive your message uh, just in the past days about citing new whale calves where you are but i know that's not the whole picture so i wonder for a start if you can catch us up on the whales of cook inlet and your life there these days what have you seen and what are you thinking
2: sure um that's a that's a really um so just uh to, to back up, I moved to Homer, Alaska at the beginning of the pandemic with my partner, and um both somehow managed to find jobs here that allowed allowed us to engage with the local community um during this, this uh time of disconnectedness. So I, I was incred- incredibly grateful for that. And also I should say thank you so much for for having me on this talk. I'm I'm extremely excited about it. Um I ended up finding a job with Cook Inlet Keeper, which is a local environmental uh, organization tasked with uh, protecting Cook Inlet uh, and, and the, uh, the people that depend on its resources. So one of my first projects with uh, Cook Inlet Keeper was to write an op-ed about how a changing permit um, issued by the Alaska Department for Environmental Conservation was going to impact these beluga whales. Um, so the Cook Inlet beluga whale is a geographically and genetically diverse um, sect of the blue whales. Um population precipitously declined in the nineteen eighties as a result of poorly managed subsistence hunting. So They were um, designated as a critically endangered species and were given uh, critical habitat protection in around 2011, but um, due to compounding stressors of water pollution, uh, noise pollution, habitat loss, prey competition, their population hasn't bounced back and are now around the 200 range, Um, it's hard to estimate. So there's currently an anomaly in the Cook Inlet as a result of natural, regarding the natural resource development where the oil and gas producers in Cook Inlet are allowed to dump a hundred thousand gallons of oil and grease untreated into the water and that's also along with 800,000 pounds of toxic metals. Um, That's an anomaly and in other U.S. coastal waters you're not allowed to do that Um, but uh, oil and gas is extremely powerful. Now the the 2009 permit, which is up for being reissued, is going to actually expand by 50% the amount of toxic metals that are going to be leached into this water. Um, And that has direct ties to uh, uh, cancer in beluga whales. Um, So, and also, I mean, it's not just the beluga whales. I think talking about the interconnectedness of of animals and people in the environment. Um, There are people, the the ecosystem depends on these beluga whales, native cultures depend on these beluga whales. Um, it brings tourism to the economy um, and it's also just the right thing to do and is economically feasible to treat this water. Um, so I think that's the message that I've been trying to put forward, that we need to listen to nature and also think about the consequences of, of harming it.
0: Let me follow up on that for a moment with you, Arielle. This may be a sort of fanciful and certainly an anthropomorphic notion on on my part, but I can't help thinking that if the whales you work with in Cook Inlet could see what Neri does, they might take heart. And so as Neri as, is at this juncture of of thinking of reaching up toward the pole, um, I wonder if you can imagine her work reaching somehow to where you are in time and, and how you would wish to see that.
2: Hmm. Um, well, I think there is something incredibly uh, mystical about them. They're Whales, just in general, are extremely intelligent. They um, mm. have parts of their brain that's developed be, uh, in terms of working together and communicating mm-hmm. that we don't have as people. Um, so, w- when I see them, there is this level of empathy um, mm. towards how how their communities are are formed. So, I think we have a lot to learn from the whales, and also have mm. this right to protect uh, to protect them. I. Um, I don't, I don't know how that work would extend beyond thinking this idea of mothering nature is
1: extremely powerful and
2: protecting the, the Alaskan wilderness and, and all that it sustains. Um, no, so I, I love Neri's ideas if she has, she has more. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Ariel, I, one, yeah, yeah, please. Sorry, Jonah. No,
1: no, no. Go ahead. I, I mean, Ariel is is doing such wonderful work with such uh, humongous creatures, and here we are at the lab, uh, working with bees and silkworms, right? Um, yeah. But what's interesting, uh, we've watched this past week uh, this incredible um, uh, witness documentary um, by David Attenborough. I'm sure you, you, you yeah, Ariel is. <laughs> is uh is smiling um and and david attenborough put together this incredible witness statement he calls it about the the world you know 80 years from now and projecting uh, uh from where we are to where we're going um and in 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 that show he speaks about how since the 1950s uh, animal populations have more than halved while the domestic birds, for example, uh, have skyrocketed because we humans consume them. So 70%, he says, um, of the mass of the birds on the planet are, are domestic birds today. Uh, we humans are, make up a third of, of the mammals on the planet. Uh, and, and out of that, um, uh, uh, beyond what we augment for our own food purposes. Uh, meaning, this is indeed, unfortunately, has become a human-centred planet, and this is a, a, a good, maybe a good, important point to discuss. Beyond that, there are four percent, and, and I believe that I believe the quote is from mice to whale. Um, uh, only four uh, percent of the rest of the animals on the planet include those um, from mice to whales. Uh, and and just um, uh, realizing the quality of these quantities and understanding, um, uh, you know, that, that we have only centuries, perhaps only a few decades to save the planet. Uh, um, uh, you know, and when I think about my own daughter, who's only a year and a half. Uh, and what the world might be like when she enters her, the age that I'm at now, um, the, the projections are extremely, extremely um, uh, disconcerting and, and worrisome. Uh, and so whether it is a silkworm or a whale, uh, there is always there is always so much to be learned from these organisms actually in Parashat Noach. Um, and I read through the parasha in preparation for this wonderful conversation. Uh, I was surprised to discover, you know, you, you always learn something new when you read, reread the parasha, uh, no matter how many times you read it, which makes it so good. Um, it says about the animals that God asked Noach to bring the animals onto the onto the, teva, uh, the animals ish uh, v'ishto, uh, meaning uh, man and woman, uh, husband and wife. Um, when he's referring to those animals. And I thought, well, how wonderful uh, that kind of uh, equality in the parasha itself uh, between the organisms and humans. Unfortunately, this is not the case today. We, we live in a human centered world. Uh, And, uh, and that world uh, is dominating uh, over all organisms from silkworms, which is in and of itself a domesticated organism that the, the wild silk moth, which is in and of itself an irony uh, to the whales, to the beluga whales uh, that, um, that are endangered species. Ron Milo also mentioned to me, uh, and that's an interesting reference point, the Eiffel Tower, uh, if, if you measure the amount of metal that was put into the design and construction of the Eiffel Tower, equals roughly to about 10,000 white rhinoceri. I wonder what this translates to in, in beluga whales, but probably not far. Uh, and, and when you think about that kind of comparison, an Eiffel Tower compared with 10,000 rare uh, white rhinoceri that are you know, disappearing from the planet as we speak, it really humbles you uh, to kind of think uh, as architects, as designers, as creators, as scientists, uh, the, you know, the, the, the incredible scientist that Ariel is going to be, um, to, to sort of think in a different way uh, about how we nurture, replenish, augment, repair. Uh, all of these organisms and how we work towards a non-human centric world uh, to enable or bring back that kind of sense of balance and harmony and synergy that existed sort of pre, you know, or post deluge, sort of hubris uh, after, the, after the big mabul and returning to that sense of humility uh, is, I think, what's needed first and foremost when we're approaching these problems. That's where the calmness comes in. I think the calmness is... Part of that humility in Ariel being able to see a, a beluga whale and to to make the move all the way to the pole during a pandemic. I mean that speaks so highly of of what Ariel stands for, and uh, and it it makes me so happy to to you know to know you. <laughs> Thank you.
0: I had I hadn't thought in area of egalitarianism as a as a term applying to your work, and I'm glad to think about it in that way. Speaking of the Eiffel Tower, perhaps, there are are wonderful continuities in what you do with previous art and human construction. From where I sit right now on the emerald necklace that runs from Brookline into Boston, I think about Frederick Law Olmsted and the weaving of the natural deliberately into the urban or if I think of the chaise that you fashioned biomorphically for the Dalai Lama, then I think about Charlotte Perriand, whose lounge chair I enjoy every Shabbat. And uh-huh. it's misattributed to the rather more brutal Le Corbusier. So yes. beautiful continuities. And yet many of the tools with which you work are often described in other settings as disruptive technologies,
1: mm-hmm. 3D
0: printing and mm-hmm. prodigious computation that approaches artificial intelligence and new molecular mm. and biophysical techniques. Yeah. I suppose an arc was something of a disruptive technology in, in Noah's story as narrated by our ancestors. And, and so I wonder how you think about the wider human potential, if you see one beyond your own very special group at MIT and your emerging company of whether these technologies, whether they're more disrupting or reconciling, in the direction that, that we go, or is that our, or is that a choice still open mm-hmm. to us?
1: Such a deep question with so many um, uh, weaves and wefts to to answer. Uh, I'll I'll try to answer in a few ways that hopefully culminate into singularity. I again, this particular moment in time, this particular year, this particular decade, and obviously this particular century, is one of a fork in the world uh, in the road for the planet in that. Up until today, for 4 billion years, um, wh- well before Noach, and Noach lived for 900, um, and we may get there. We may get back to, to, to living 900 years, and, and I'll get to that at the end of my, my point. But for 4 billion years, uh, we've been sort of subjugated to the rigors of organic chemistry. Uh, so from, from the from the amoeba to the beluga whale, um, these organisms, their intelligence, their communication, including human beings, have been dominated by the, 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 the ruling uh, science of organic chemistry. Um, what is happening today, and, and that ruling science sort of defined uh, evolution by natural selection, um, and so I'm taking you 4 billion years. I'll take you 100 years shortly, sort of to, to, to Charlotte Perrienne and Corbusier. But sort of thinking about the big picture, uh, what is different from in this year than the past 4 billion years? Well, we are now at a point as architects and designers where, and engineers, uh, where we can design organic matter. And by the way, inorganic matter to emulate, to replicate, forms of intelligence, uh, think deep mind, and obviously AI, the, the incredible renaissance uh, with regards to AI, um, that will, I believe, um, uh, inform uh, evolution in the coming centuries. Uh, so that's one thing that's happening that's incredibly important to say, uh, state. Uh, another thing that's happening is that we're reaching beyond our planet. Uh, you can think of a uh, our planet is Tevat Noach in the context of the galaxy, uh, and you can think of sort of SpaceX as its own uh, Noah's Ark, right? And, and you know, what do we bring to the rocket when we go to Mars? We, you know, what what kind of organisms do we choose to engineer for the visit to Mars? Clearly, organic life is insufficient or will not be able to be sustained on these uh, extraterrestrial terrains, and so this culmination of moving beyond or beyond the, or moving towards the ability to design, to transcend organic matter with our ability to now form new kinds of civilizations that are uh, multi-planet species based or uh, civilizations is, is again incredibly humbling. And, and you find that notion of Tevat Noach extremely, uh, self, there's a lot of self-similarity um, between the various cases. I think that we are. That, that's where the 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 term "mothering nature" and sort of looking back in order to look forward, disrupting in order to find calmness. These, for me, are the same things. Uh, uh, you're using the word disruptive technologies. Um, those disruptive technologies are sort of moments of that that require insight. But I would say everything is the same and everything is different at once. You know, we. We have changed so much as a species, and yet you know, the, the 34 or so Shakespeare plays still apply <laughs> to human nature. So it, it's, it's humbling, again, um, but, uh, but, but I think this is a moment of, again, a moment of humility and a moment where we need to look back in order to look forward, uh, where, where the story of Noah is more, more than an ancient precedent. It really is a, a kernel. or a reference for us to to think about. In terms of sort of the shorter timelines, Corbusier, Charlotte Perrien, of course, there's a conversation there as well. Um, Since the Industrial Revolution, everything we design and make uh, is informed by the tools that have been created in the Industrial Revolution, the chair, the skyscraper. Um, because we're now entering the biological revolution, because architects now finally have access to genetic engineering tools, to designing with organic matter, uh, this conversation sort of lies beyond our, ours and, and, and the great modernists to include, uh, how, you know, how do we think about furniture, for example, to use the example of the chaise that uh, that can decay by design, a kind of a chaise that can turn into another organism that can feed nature, replenish, etc. cetera. Um, so, so I think this, this is a, the, the kind of reflection is less a reflection of style and more an insight of critical thinking.
0: Ar- Ariel, you're far away this semester from the point of view of Harvard Yard. Uh, possibly a wise choice in these times and and, and somehow also a Noach-like one in terms of helping other creatures survive the cataclysm of our times if you can and if they can. But I want to also bring this back to Harvard. Neri got me thinking of the Carpenter Center and other landscapes but also furnishings and really everything that that surrounds us in our regard. So let me ask you uh, Ariel as you think about this campus and its built up world and about your fellow students and our community here I suppose my question is what can you bring back home to us from where you are and and what you're doing.
2: Sure. Um well I think that in, in Harvard's culture, there there is one that you need to do everything at, at every time um, and it's always go, go, go. Um, and I think that helps, you know, that, that forces you to lose perspective of, of oftentimes a, a bigger picture. Um, and I think a lot of students are are, are less happy uh, because of it. I think um, on a personal note, I've, I've been able to engage a lot more in nature um, and enjoy that very much and also uh, experience what it, what it can benefit you and also how how it is these massive extinction and um you know alaska's forests burn more acreage than california does that's something people don't really acknowledge because it's so rural but um so i hope coming back to harvard i'm i'm going to be able to bring that perspective and implement it into my own life to to make sure Um, I'm making the right choices for me, but also, um, you know, have maybe this understanding of a different part of the country that I could apply. Um, Yeah.
0: You know, if I think of the pressures of the Harvard culture, you know, in Mm -hmm. preparation for this conversation, Neri, and thinking about the Tower of Babel, Migdal Bavel, which follows Noah and the Flood in this week's Torah reading, you shared with me an article of yours in which you described your own process and the potential process for all of us, perhaps, as driving continually and productively around an energy cycle, so to speak, a la Krebs, Mm -hmm. from art, to science, to engineering, to design, by way of information, knowledge, utility, behavior, in a circle through the domains of culture and nature. If we think about the biblical story of Migdal Bavel, about the Tower of Babel, then the problem in the words of that story is that they're towering ambition. The people are all of devarim achadim, one mm. vocabulary, mm. Um, one all-too-common lexicon or frame of mm. reference. And the divine solution is to mix things up, levalbel, to shake up the picture with baffling or babbling diversity. Uh, I-, I wonder how you think about the hazard of devarim achadim of humankind in our globalized world with pressures toward conformity, adopting a monolithic way of thinking and articulating even a monolithic way of being perhaps.
1: Mm. What a dull world would it be uh, without the ability to sing to the whales, right? What a dull world, what a dull existence. Uh, would it be without the ability to to look at the aunt and say, as Raika, my little one says, hello, aunt, hello, aunt. And it's just, again, it's just incredible to watch what we are born with and how we find adulthood later in life, I, I think. And, and one should never lose that kind of beginner's mind, the, the ability to speak no language and yet all languages at once. You know, what do you need more? than the ability to laugh, to cry, and to think. Beyond that, you don't really need much. Uh, language, it can come, you learn it, but empathy, it's, it's something, you know, that is character-based, that is normative, that is not about uh, this additional technical skill. So I think there is so much to learn, and I'm learning every day um, from uh, looking into nature and, and looking into my own child and my students, my colleagues, uh, how to speak multiple languages at once. Um, and when that, uh, it's it's a little bit like the moment where all the orchestra, you know, the orchestra prepares for the symphony, and you hear all of the uh, the, the, the 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 players tune their instruments to a single big balagan, big bilboul that is just so much fun and so wonderful. You know something great is going to emerge. And I think we all should reach for that kind of, um, uh, we should all sort of love, learn to love and to appreciate, have more appreciation for that dissonance because it brings so much harmony on the other side. For more practically, the the, the Krebs cycle of creativity is one that I've worked on for several years and trying to, when I came to MIT, I was sort of, I, I was given, you know, the labs Bible, which was here are four quadrants, um, art in, in the Northeast, uh, science in the Southwest, and in, engineering and design sprinkled in between. And, you know, and, and if you're a citizen of one, you are a tourist in the other. And I thought, why? Why is that? Why can you not uh, um, create a kind of a vertical microscope where when you're looking as a material scientist at material properties, you can just change the lens and look at the behavior of, of whatever it is that you're seeing under your lens. And so the Age of Entanglement, which is the essay you're referring to, I wrote as sort of my treatise to, for for, and of um, a kind of a manifesto towards under, understanding the disciplines as, as a singularity and understanding that the input for one discipline can become the output for another, meaning as a scientist, we tend to transform information into knowledge. As an engineer, we take this knowledge and we transform it into utility. The designer then takes that utility and applies it to practical translations in our culture. And the artists look at that culture and formulate new perceptions of our reality. And then if you believe in the Cinderella moment, at 12 o'clock where Picasso met Einstein, which I will never, I will always believe was the case, despite the fact. Uh, then you can really sort of have sort of science be inspired by art, and and I think Migdal Bavel is is another story of sort of the first and a, a kind of a first and also a prophecy of of human nature. Again, it's it's the hubris. It's it's sort of being blinded by the ambition to the point where you you sort of forget how to forget. You forget how to enjoy. Not knowing, you forget how to enjoy you know that, that Bilbul, uh, and, and so I think we need more of that, especially now uh, in in the age of pandemics and climate change.
0: We, we could go on and on, and, and I feel as though we must, and yet it's also so poignant that this conversation is happening on the verge of Shabbat, and you know in some cases turning off the technology for a while, and in any case, uh, taking a breath, um, yeah. and, and having the kind of time you were describing your daughter having, which should be a sort of time we all discover and enjoy. Um, your work, each of you, both of you, uh, are such sources of hope. It, it's not too much to say hope for a redemption of our species, and maybe, just maybe, a, a saving path through the terrible disruptions of, of this moment um, that you framed for us so um, so strikingly, Neri, and that is visible so much in, in the place where you are, Ariel. So I want to thank you both for, for being here, for looking into the book and into the future together. Um, and most of all, Shabbat Shalom.
1: Shabbat Shalom Jonah, Shabbat Shalom Ariel, and please stay in touch, and I look forward to the next conversation, and the next, and the next, and the song. Thank you. Well, thank you. Shabbat Shalom to you both.
0: Wonderful to see you. Shabbat
1: Shalom. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, that's terrific. Okay. It was good? Great.